All right. Thank you, David, for leading us in that time of singing and praise. And so, friends, it's time for us to dive into our study of God's Word this morning. And we're going to be looking today at Psalm 126. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Psalm 126. Now, I, I chose Psalm 126 because we're kind of in this in-between week where we've anticipated Christmas for the last month or so, focusing on Christ's coming. And of course, next week will be the beginning of a new year. And so between Christmas and New Year's is this kind of in-between time. And I think that's something that is symbolic of many seasons of our lives. We've we're on this side of the great things God has done in the Christmas story, perhaps is coming into our lives and great things he has done. And we await and we long for these great things in the future, whether it's chiefly the Lord's second coming, his return, or perhaps some great things God wants us to do in the future. And yet right now we find ourselves in this in-between time. And so I wanted to take advantage of that opportunity that we are quite literally in this in-between time together between Christmas and New Year. And so I kind of want to talk about what we are meant to do in these in-between times. And I think a perfect text of scripture that helps us to reflect on that is Psalm 126. So what we'll do is we'll begin by reading the text in its entirety. We'll pray and we'll get into our study this morning. So Psalm 126, a song of ascents. This is God's word. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much that you are the Lord of every season of life. Lord, we just lift up this particular moment to you in our yearly lives, Lord, where we are in between Christmas and the new year. And I believe for many of us that might be indicative of this particular season in life. Lord, we may be able to look back over the great things you have done either this last year or in years past. And we can anticipate the future, Lord, of the great things you want us to do and the people you want us to reach and the victory over sin you want to grant your people. And of course, chiefly among all those things, we long for your return, Lord Jesus, when you come and you restore your kingdom in its fullness to this world. And so, Lord, as we are in these in-between times, we pray that you would sanctify us, that we would learn what to do, that we would learn to look back on the past and give thanks. But we also pray you would teach us to acknowledge the tension that often exists in these in-between moments in life. And we pray that you would grant your people the perseverance and strength to move forward into the future, to not lose heart, to not give up hope, but to continue to sow the seed of the kingdom everywhere we have the opportunity. We ask for a blessing now over the study of God's word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, many of you might not know the name Knowles Shaw. Uh, certainly uh, for many younger people, they probably never heard of that name in their lives. And uh, perhaps for many of you, uh, you've never heard of that name either. Well, Noel Shaw is probably not a household name for most people. He was born on October 13th, 1834, and he's not particularly remembered as a prominent historical figure. In fact, he's chiefly remembered as the writer of hymns, and perhaps his most popular hymn is a song called Bringing in the Sheaves. And so let me just read the lyrics to that song that is based on the psalm in front of us this morning, Psalm 126. So in that brief uh, gospel hymn, this is what Noel Shaw wrote. Sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontime and the dewy eve, waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. The refrain says, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, bringing in the sheaves, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Sowing in the sunshine, sowing in the shadows, fearing neither cloud nor winter's chilling breeze, by and by the harvest and the labor ended, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. Going forth with weeping, sowing for the master, though the loss sustained, our spirit often grieves. When our weeping's over, he will bid us welcome. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. So I think in that gospel hymn written by Noel Shaw some 180 years ago, he kind of captures the very heart of Psalm 120. Six, And that is that there are times in life where God's people find themselves waiting, waiting for God to do great things. And there can be temptation to doubt and despair because they can look back on the past and they can see glorious moments and acts of mercy and seasons of joy. And so when that tension that inevitable tension in life comes in which we are no longer there in the past. We don't have the joy that we had in the past. And we long for this future to come. And yet in the moment, in the present, we don't find that joy that we so often seek. And so God's people need to learn to live in these in-between times. And so that's what I want to focus on today. Now, as we get into the text of Psalm 26, I want to look at the structure. Um, so this is a bipartite psalm. That means it's simply divided into two parts. And so let's look at it from sort of a macro level, an overview level. So if you'll notice, it is divided in part one, that's verses one through three, and part two is verses four through six. Let's observe the differences between these two parts, because I think it really highlights what the purpose of this psalm is. So the first part, you'll notice, is a reflection on the past. It is not a meditation on life's present circumstances. It is not a reflection or anticipation of the future. Rather, specifically, it is an intentional reflection upon God's great acts of mercy in the past. 
Okay, so reflection on the past, and in particular, it is one of joy because it is a recollection that God has done amazing things. He's done miraculous things in the past. So that's part one. But notice now, as we move to the second part, which is verses four through six, it's a different feeling. The situation is not the same as in verses one through three. In the second part, verses 4 through 6, we see that in the present, there is difficulty. In the present, there is an apparent lack of results. And the accompanying feeling or sentiment is one of sorrow. It is one of weeping. And so what do God's people do in these in-between times when they can look back on the past and they can recall good times of great joy like we just celebrated Christmas? We, we look back, we anticipated Christmas, Christmas came, but now we're on this side of Christmas. We're looking back. The future New Year's is on the horizon, but it's not here. What do God's people do in these in-between times. So what I want to do now is I want to look at each verse line by line because I think each verse really contributes to the overall purpose of the psalm. And I want to conclude with three daily practices for this week that I think are really going to help focus us as God's people as we prepare for the new year. So let's begin with verse 1. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Now, one of the things that interpreters of the Bible and interpreters of the Psalms in particular often try to do is locate the Psalm historically. In other words, it's important for us if we want to hear the Bible as the word of God, and we acknowledge that God has chosen to speak through human vessels, He's chosen human instruments, apostles and prophets, to write the words of God, and that God didn't bypass the prophet, he didn't bypass the psalmist, that there is a particular time and situation. And so it's important for us that we do our very best to listen to the scripture, to listen to the psalm in its original human historical context in order that we might rightly hear the word of God. That is an important exercise. Now, while we attempt to do that, we must also humbly acknowledge we can't, all, we can't always do this with a degree of accuracy that we would like. Now, sometimes that may be just be a problem on our end as, as readers and recipients of the Bible, but as many scholars point out, this is often intentional, that there can often be an intentional lack of specificity in the Psalms. While the first writer of Psalm 126 clearly had a historical context probably in mind, yet they opted not to be very specific about that. And this is the case, not always, but many times in the Psalms. And the reason is, at the end of the day, these Psalms are going to be written and they're going to be compiled in sacred scripture for all of God's people for all history. That includes you and I thousands of years later. And so sometimes if there's too much detail, if there's too much specificity, sometimes that can actually create distance between us, the reader, and the writer, the first human author inspired 
who wrote the scriptures. So many times it's intentionally general. Now, I think there, there's kind of a, a generality and a specificity to Psalm 126. Uh, look again at what it says. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Again, there were many times throughout Israel's history in which they went through hard times. We have to remember that. Uh, the promised land was not all milk and honey. It was milk and honey, yes, but also giants. There were giants in the land without, and there was sin within Israel's own hearts that they had to wrestle with during their time in the promised land. So there were probably many times in which this psalm could fit into a historical context. But I think very likely, in my own estimation, as well as that of numerous biblical scholars, probably there is, with some degree of accuracy and assurance, we can designate that this probably refers to the return of the exiles from Babylon. Now, if you remember the story of Israel, that in 586 B.C., after hundreds of years of God's people being warned that if they were unfaithful to God, if they violated the covenant that they made with God as a people at Mount Sinai, way back in Exodus, under the leadership of Moses, if they continued to violate that, if they continued to dishonor God, if they continued to do evil, and if they continued to make God a laughingstock among the pagan nations, God would send them into exile. And though God was slow to wrath and abundant in mercy, and he sent prophet after prophet to warn them, judgment is never God's first word. Grace always is. But at the end of the day, if people spurn the grace of God, if they reject the grace of God, then God has to act for the honor and glory of his name and in order that sinners might turn from their sins. So finally, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come and they sack Jer Jerusalem. They destroy the temple down to rubble and they bring everyone to Babylon. And so they, they were there for 70 years. We know that in Jeremiah, God said, you will be punished for 70 years in accordance with all the Sabbaths that you violated for those many years you were in the land. You will repay me. You will pay me back for that which you have robbed me of, God says. And so Israel is in exile. But then in 539 BC, something miraculous happened. And I want you to picture this, friends. Israel had gone through a, a tremendous traumatic event seeing, I mean, un unspeakable violence. Um, some, some of this is uh, recorded in history, the kind of violence and pillaging and sacking and raping and plundering. That I, I mean, it was just a horrible, horrible, awful state of affairs when uh, Jerusalem fell. And the people of Israel were brought in to Babylon. So everything they had hoped for and loved was, was destroyed. And instead, they were taken into a pagan land, into a false land, and they had to learn to live a, a new life there. Now, as bad as that sounds, human beings have been made by God incredibly resilient, incredibly resilient. And the Jewish people, by the grace of God, have proved to be incredibly resilient throughout the history of their sojourn throughout the world. 
And while in Babylon, they actually began to do well. They began to build lives, and a generation of Israelites were actually born there in Babylon. So they never knew the promised land. They never knew the temple in its glory days. All they knew was Babylon. All they knew was, hey, we're, we're in a bad way, but we're going to make the best of it, and we're going to build a life here. And they were able, to some extent, to actually do that. And so they put down roots, and they planned and said, hey, this is life. Um, we didn't we, you know, we don't want this, but this is where we are. We're going to make the best of it. But then God in his sovereignty moves once again. He does a mighty thing. The mighty Babylonians fall to the Medo-Persians. And famously, Cyrus the Great, whom the Bible refers to as a, an anointed one, a chosen one of God, pagan leader. But God is sovereign over all the pagan leaders of the world, including to this very day. Good for us to remember. And he moves the heart of Cyrus to issue an edict that allows the Jews to begin returning home. And so probably the writer of this psalm, Psalm 126, is in the land. They've returned after the fall of Jerusalem in 586, after the edict of Cyrus in 539. They were probably, this writer was probably amongst that group of about 42,000 Jews that first returned in that first wave to Jerusalem. And so it says, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, they were captive. They were literally captive, not just figuratively, literally captive in a strange land. And Yahweh did a mighty thing and just unspeakable thing in a moment. It went from we are slaves of Babylon to we are being freed by Cyrus the Persian. And so they're coming back and the Cyrus and the author of this psalm is reflecting on that. And notice what it must have been like. It says, we were like those who dream it was so unbelievably good. You, you, you had to just slap yourself. Am I awake? Am I dreaming? Is something this good even possible? So it was just incredible. It was miraculous. This was nothing but the divine hand of Almighty God. The God who spoke the world into existence out of nothing had once again, just as with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand, he had redeemed Israel out of Egypt. So too now, God is redeeming his sinful wayward people out of Babylon and back to Zion, back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Again, just notice the, the laughter that's going on again. Uh, remember that ancient people were human beings uh, in, in every sense of the word that you and I are today. I know because outwardly culture can be incredibly different. Sometimes people erroneously look upon ancient peoples and the peoples of the Bible as being fundamentally different from them. 
But friends, I assure you they were not, that there is a fundamentally shared human nature that we all have. And, and this feature of laughter, that even in an ancient world where things were very hard and they didn't have the technology and the medicine and the science that we have today, and yet they were capable of laughter. And laughter was like the medicine of life, just as it is today. And so they were filled with laughter and, and it was laughing at the seeming just incongruity of life that just a moment ago we were in a hard way and look where we are now. It just makes you want to laugh and God had filled their hearts with laughter. And it says in our tongue with singing. And again, this, this psalm, if you'll notice in the superscription, that's kind of the, the little introduction above, it says a song of ascents. And of course, that means that this was a psalm used by pilgrims who would journey back to Jerusalem. And it didn't matter where you were coming from in the world. Jerusalem was at elevation. So you were always ascending. You were always going up to Jerusalem. And so once again, the people of God were a pilgrim people able to return together. Remember, not just alone as individuals, but as a people returning and singing together as they journeyed up for worship. Now notice this. It's true that God does all these things because he loves his people. And he wants his people to have joy, and he wants to fill their mouths with laughter, and he wants to hear the voice of their singing. But know that what's notice that what's at stake is more than, than Israel's own personal happiness. Notice that God's mighty redemptive acts in history are also for the benefit of the pagan Gentile nations. In other words, it's not simply because God loves Israel that he does great things for them but also because he loves the nations that he does great things for Israel. Because it's by doing great things for Israel that they could not do for themselves that caused the pagan nations to recognize the one true living God, Yahweh. So notice how verse 2 ends. Then they said among the nations, and again, the nations is the Hebrew word goyim, which is a specific reference to pagan nations, Gentile nations. Then they said among the goyim, the Lord Yahweh has done great things for them. So notice why God is blessing his people. It is not just for them. It includes them, but it is not just for them. It is for a witness to the pagan nations. And so even the pagan nations are saying, wow, they've they've they were carried off into exile. They remained identifiable as a people. Mighty Babylon has fallen. A new mighty power has risen. And Israel's being sent back to their homeland and they're building their temple again. Wow, the nations are marveling and saying, wow, Yahweh is great. So notice there is an evangelistic purpose to why God is restoring the fortunes of Israel. And lastly of part one is verse three. The psalmist ends here by acknowledging, yes, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Again, notice this is past tense. This is a reflection on the past. The Lord has done great things for us. So the psalmist begins with intentional reflection 
on the past and that that is important. Some people ignore the past. We're not called to do that. Some people focus on only the bad things in the past. We're not called to do that. But like the psalmist, part of spiritual practice is to look back on the past for God's mighty acts of redemption. And we are called to acknowledge those things in worship. However, it's true that for many Christians in the church today, they like to have this kind of pie-in-the-sky theology that all is right with the world. If you will just come to Jesus, then you shouldn't get sick. You shouldn't get cancer. You shouldn't go to the hospital. You shouldn't get a divorce. Your children shouldn't walk away from God. You shouldn't lose your job. The church shouldn't have any divisions or splits or anything else. But friends, that is simply not biblical. The Bible is such a tremendous resource for us because it is intensely practical and realistic. Many times in life, we will be in a situation like we are this week, where we are on this side of Christmas. We have anticipated, and, and, and Christ has come into the world, and we've celebrated, and we've rejoiced. But now that moment is over. It is as though the angels appear to the shepherds, and the shepherds rejoice, and with excitement they go to see Mary and Joseph and Jesus in the manger, and they worship. And then guess what? They go back to work on Monday. The Bible doesn't say that they cease to be shepherds, that they cease to live a hard life, that their reputation suddenly became great in the community, or that many believed them, or that Jesus instantaneously did all these things that the prophecies foretold of. No, Jesus was still a baby, and he had to grow up, and he had to become a child, and he wouldn't begin his earthly ministry for about 30 years. And so the Bible acknowledges there's going to be these in between times, there's going to be these times of tension. And so now as we move into the final part of this psalm, we see that God acknowledges that and that he has a purpose for the in between times. Let's seek if we can discern that as we continue this psalm. Look at verse 4. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Now, again, that, that might sound like a little bit of a contradiction. In verse 1, he said, when the Lord brought back captivity. So that's past tense, as though God already did it. But then in verse 4, he says, bring back our captivity as the streams, as if he hasn't done that. Now, again, historically, the exile and the return fits this situation perfectly. And the way in which it does so is we know that when Cyrus issued his edict, most of the Jews did not return, friends. They did not. Some had gotten so settled down there in Babylon, they're actually like, we don't want to go back to the homeland. Our life is here. We built a good life for ourselves. Yes, we, we didn't want to leave originally, but to be honest, now that we're here, we want to stay here and we don't want to take the risk. We don't want to take the risk of upping our roots and going back and having to begin all over again from square one. We're just not there. We can't do it. So it took a real pioneering spirit to go back to the land of Israel when, remember, even though it was a glorious thing, let's not be naive. It was a very, very dire predicament. 
There were enemies all around Israel. Israel's in a weakened position there in their homeland. Remember, Jerusalem had been raised to the ground. The temple was in rubbles. The ground had not been tilled for, for decades and decades, which meant they were going to be working very, very hard to get very, very little. And who would want to do that when you could have more abundance where you already were in Babylon? So the psalmist is probably someone who's returned and they're thankful, but then they look back and say, Lord, but, but bring more back. Bring your people back. We want all of Israel coming back. We believe they're all meant to be here and they're not supposed to stay there. And so there's a tension of, yes, God's already done great things, but then there's, there's that recognition that no, it has not been completed. We're still waiting for God to do great things. So I believe there's no contradiction here, but we have what is in many cases throughout the Bible, a situation of what we call already and not yet theology. That God has already done great things and yet he has not done all the things that he has promised he will do. And we as God's people live in that tension of already and not yet. So he says, bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Now that word south in Hebrew is, is Negev. And the Negev is actually a specific area. It's the southernmost portion of Israel down towards the Sinai Peninsula. So many of you may have seen pictures of uh, northern Israel, and it can be very lush and very green and beautiful rolling hills and, and vineyards and, and tropical seasides and, and all this stuff. But remember, there's a portion of Israel, the southernmost portion, which is an arid land. It gets just under eight inches of rain annually per year. And so it's a very, very harsh place. And it's mostly desert and very, very difficult to inhabit. But once in a while, that eight inches of rain that I mentioned, it would all come at, at one time or just a few times. So imagine this. You've got desert. It's barren. It's brown. You can't grow anything there. It's, it's like, man, you could work day after day after day, seven days a week for years, and you could see nothing. But then all of a sudden, a torrent would come, a downpour. It was like all that rain that had been lacking for months and months and months is suddenly coming down in a moment. And quite literally overnight, you could start to see grass and flowers blooming. And so that seems to be the picture in nature. The psalmist looks out and says, oh God, you are sovereign over the creative processes of the world. And with my eyes, I see how there's this uninhabitable land, these harsh conditions, and it reminds me of my own to this day. And yet even there, Lord, I know that once in a while, there is a mighty outpouring of rain and suddenly a once barren land becomes fruitful. Lord, since you are sovereign over that process and I attribute that process to you, Lord, I believe you can do that in us. That is what the psalmist is saying. Continue to bring back. Lord, I pray that all those 
exiles that have remained in Babylon and have refused. I pray like a torrent, they would all come flooding back to Israel and that all of our labor here, which we're toiling and sweating and it seems to be fruitless, Lord, just miraculously like you did in the past with the, with the edict of Cyrus, like you did in the past of bringing Israel out of Egypt, Lord, do it again. Do it again. Lord, we believe, we desire that you will do it again. Lord, we believe there was a revival in the 60s in the United States and Southern California, the Jesus people. Lord, do it again. We believe. We look to that. We acknowledge that. But Lord, we acknowledge we're in a hard place spiritually in America today. Many people are walking away from you, Lord. And it's hard. It's hard to stay faithful. It's hard to keep sowing seeds when people don't respond and they harden their heart and, and they live for worldly things that don't last. Lord, it is hard. But we believe you will do it again. That is what the psalmist is saying here. Now notice once again, he's acknowledging the reality of life, that in the present, God doesn't promise us that we'll always be laughter, that it'll always be joy. He acknowledges that there can be very, very painful, difficult seasons of life. Look at what he says in verse five. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Notice that the psalmist acknowledges that many of our life's work, that much of the good that we do for the Lord, that the truth that we tell, the hard work that we do, sharing the gospel, teaching the Bible, mentoring, discipling, pouring out into people's lives, making the phone calls and the emails and the visits and, and counseling and being there for people as they go through marital problems or as they're having a hard time with their children or as they wrestle with cancer or whatever it might be. As we go through that, there will be weeping. Friends, if weeping is where you're at right now, know that no strange thing has befallen you. God is not forsaken you. It is not something that is outside the purview of God, that is outside biblical norms. Rather, it is a part of the experience of the psalmist. And so at seasons of life, it'll be our experience as well. But notice what the psalmist says here. The psalmist does not want to allow our tears to become a reason to cease sowing. For many of us, when we are in a season of tears, we stop serving. We're like, I don't want to serve the Lord anymore. I don't want to commit. I don't want to invest in other people. I don't care about the kingdom anymore. I'm just going to take care of me. But friends, one of the ways we work through the season of tears is continuing to sow. Sowing brings redemption to the tears. And so the last thing I would want for people is that they abandon sowing seeds for the kingdom if they find themselves in an in-between time that is difficult and bringing about tears. Notice how he goes on and he repeats what he says in verse 5 here in the final verse 6 and expounds on it some more in detail. He says, he who continually, notice that, not just once, not just, I got up one day, I had tears, but I kept on sowing for the Lord, but I'm going to quit today. No, notice, he who continually, do not quit, persevere, keep on pushing to the finish line, who continually 
goes forth weeping, which means weeping may endure for a season, friends, but bearing seed for sowing. So continually hearing the word, you need to have the seed or you cannot sow. So allow the seed to be sown in you. And as long as you are doing that, you are continually going forth, sowing the seeds of God's word. And notice we have a promise, friends. We shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. There is a promise here in God's word. And so I think as we reflect on this psalm, we can see that there is perhaps no greater fulfillment of this bipartite psalm than in the life of Jesus Christ himself. As a matter of fact, we know that the New Testament unveils a previously hidden truth. That is, that there would not be only one coming of the Messiah, but two. And we can see that in those two comings of the Messiah, they are characterized by two different things. The first coming of Jesus was characterized by tears. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 53.3 says, Jesus, the Messiah, would be despised and rejected by men. Listen to this, friends. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Friends, don't think that if we go through hard times or, or we, we're heavy-hearted or we have sorrows that, that we are somehow outside the Christian life. Rather, that may be an indication you are at the very center of it. For our Savior himself, who we just celebrated his birth on Christmas, is the very Savior of whom the Scripture says he was a man of sorrows acquainted, familiar with grief. That is indicative of his first coming. A man with a heavy heart. He knew what was set before him. The cross always loomed from the very beginning, being born in a cave, wrapped in cloths. He knew that was where he was going. His, his earthly life would end in a cave, wrapped once again in cloths after his death on the cross. He's a man of sorrows. And yet when Jesus returns, friend, it will not be sorrow, but he will triumph in glory and joy. And he will bring glory and joy together for his people. To those who continue to sow through the tears, they too will reap in joy when the Messiah returns. And so it is in Jesus we see the fulfillment of the bar pipe barpite structure of Psalm 126. And so it is Jesus we look to in our in-between times. It is Jesus we look to in our sorrows. And it is Jesus we look to for our rejoicing and vindication at his return. Now, friends, let me give you three things to practice every morning this week as we prepare for the new year. Three things. Number one, Reflect and give thanks for the great things God has done. Number one, reflect and give thanks for the great things God has done. Notice what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to take control of your memory. We all have memories. Uh, some of us, uh, that functions better than others. Uh, some of us, maybe we tend towards more positive things than others. Uh, but for many of us, and this tends to be human nature, and there's reasons even why God would have installed this in us as a part of our human nature, we often reflect on the negative. 
And part of that is, is a warning mechanism. We want to be able to remember a bad thing. So, hey, if I need to avoid this or avoid that. But there, there's a real problem that we can tend to only look at the negative. And so what I'm asking you to do is look back on the past intentionally. But instead of looking at all the bad things that have happened to you and all the disappointments and failures and frustrations, and for some of you, maybe it's those things that control your life. It controls your present. But notice what scripture is calling us to do in this psalm. Reflect back on the past and look for all the great things God has done. You can do this in two ways, both personally, just yourself, your family, your church, or even our country. You can reflect on the great things God has done in the past. So take a mental note of that. That is a discipline. Do that and speak those out to God. Write them in a journal. This has a transformative effect on the life of the believer. Number two, acknowledge your present difficulties and voice them to God in prayer. Number two, acknowledge your present difficulties and give them to God in prayer. So again, we're, we're not being these people who, oh, everything is good, everything is fine. No, we're, we're looking back on the past. We're beginning there. Yes, God has always been faithful. He's proved himself faithful. You remember that time? Didn't think we were going to make it and we made it. How are we here to this day? I don't even know God has done it. So you're, you're building up rejoicing in what God's done for the past. But like the psalmist, notice the psalmist does not shy away as he moves into part two that, hey, present realities aren't all roses. It's not all milk and honey. There's some very real struggles and challenges. So remember, whether this is you personally or your family or our, our church community or believers in America or the Western world or different parts of the world for that matter, acknowledge what those are. Don't stuff them. Don't suppress them. Don't let them take over your life and ruin you today so that you stop sowing. Rather, acknowledge what they are and voice them to God. God, I face this challenge today. Lord, I'm going through chemo again this week. I, I voice this to you. Lord, we're going through hard times. I don't know what we're going to do about this. I don't know what we're going to do about that. But Lord, I give it to you. So acknowledge those present difficulties and give them to God. And lastly, number three, ask for strength to continue sowing seeds of the kingdom. Number three, ask God for strength to continue sowing seeds for the kingdom. Remember, Jesus used the parable of the sower to communicate the mission of all of God's people, not just me, friends, as a pastor. I'm sowing the seed of the word of God in all of you so that you, in turn, might sow the seed of the word of God in others this week. So ask that God, in whatever relationships you have, your family, your home, your place of business, people you interact with on the internet, email, text messages, phone calls, whatever it is, whatever you can use in this world, your vocation, your job, your hobbies, your neighborhood, whatever, whatever connects you to another human being, ask God to give you the strength to continue to sow seed. Friends, even if it's in tears, even if you're in a season of pain and difficulty, do not cease to sow the kingdom, the seed of the kingdom of God, for we've been promised by a God who cannot change, who doesn't lie, that he who goes forward sowing in tears will reap with joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, I thank you for this, this 
moment in time after Christmas and before New Year's, which really does remind us of so many seasons of life where we are in an in-between time. We've seen the great things you've done in the past, but we have very serious challenges today. But we have all the reason in the world to be optimistic because to those who believe in Jesus, the fact remains that the best is yet to come. And so, Lord, I pray as we practice diligently these three things, reflecting on the truth of your word, you would mold and shape your people to be more and more like the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Use us, Lord, to sow the seeds of the kingdom in the lives of all those around us. And may you use us as followers of Jesus to sow the seeds of the kingdom in that others might share the joy of the Lord with us. We ask for this blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everyone, I hope that you will have a blessed week. I really do hope you will write down those three things. If you missed it or you weren't ready with a pen or pencil, go back and just listen to that. Write those three things down and do those every morning this week as we uh, await the new year. So next Sunday, we'll be doing a special one-off New Year's message, just kind of talk about uh, where we're going as a church, what's going on in the world around us, and kind of our, our vision and our focus focus for this next coming year, and then we'll resume and finish our study of the book of Exodus. Uh, again, we'll be starting new studies on Wednesday nights in the new year. We'll be going through 2 Corinthians. So those of you who are who have been sowing with tears and going through difficult season, I could not think of a more encouraging book to go through than the book of 2 Corinthians. So I highly recommend you join us on Wednesday nights in the new year as we begin our study of 2 Corinthians. Corinthians. So friends, again, we encourage you to stay focused on the Lord, keep serving the Lord, stay engaged as much as you can. Again, we have an uh, in-person service coming again in January. That'll be January 24th. And help us get the word out on this one. I think the best invitation is you, you inviting a friend or family member, neighbor, a coworker to our service. It's going to be a special service. We're going to have a special worship band called the Small Giants. They're going to be leading worship for us on that Sunday. We're also going to have a guest speaker, former United States Navy SEAL Chad Williams, who's also an evangelist. He's going to be coming and giving a special message of encouragement to all of us as we begin the new year. So it's going to be a great uh, day of celebration. So I highly encourage you to mark that date, January 24th. 10.30 a.m. on your calendars, and make sure, start getting the, the invite out. We'll post more information on our website as we go. Again, for those of you that would like to continue to support the ministry and mission of Image Church, you would like to continue worshiping the Lord through tithes and offerings, and I know for many, uh, the end of the year is a great time for them to be able to give gifts before the final uh, year comes to an end. So if you'd like to do that, you can do so in two ways. Uh, first ways, you can go onto our website, which is imagechurchoc.com, and you can click on the giving tab up at the top, and you're able to give with either a debit or a credit card. For those of you that prefer to mail in a check or money order, you can do so to 27762 Antonio Parkway, L is in Larry, 514, and that's Ladera Ranch, California, 
972694. Again, all that information is on our website, imagechurchoc.com. Now let me close with this prayer blessing. May the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you, everyone. Thank you so much for joining with us. Uh, if you like this service, if it was a blessing to you, feel free to like the post, comment, share. If you don't have an account, you can copy and paste and send it to a friend or loved one. Again, thank you, everyone. God bless you, and I hope you all have a happy and safe New Year.